There was one paragraph that I think I just have to read for everyone because it was so beautiful and I think it sums up this conversation around language so nicely. So I'll read this direct excerpt from the book, which says, When we tell them that the tree is not a who, but an it, we make that maple an object. We put a barrier between us, absolving ourselves of moral responsibility and opening the door to exploitation. Saying it makes the living land into natural resources. If a maple is an it, we can take up the chainsaw. If a maple is a her, we think about it twice. Welcome to the DFN Podcast. I'm Allie, your host today and the founder and executive director here at Data Feminism Network. Today, I'm joined by Simran Panache, our director of business development, to have a data-centric discussion of the book, Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants by Robin Wall Kimmerer. We are so excited to share this episode with you. Hope you enjoy. Hey, Simran, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Ali. I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. So I'm thinking we should probably kick off this episode by acknowledging that this book is quite unique from the types of books we've historically read in our book clubs and discussed on the podcast. You can think of Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer as a braid woven from three strands, Indigenous wisdom, scientific knowledge, and the teaching of plants. Now, data can take many forms in Indigenous communities, including the traditional stories that are handed down from one generation to the next. In a 2017 article published by the First Nations Information Governance Center, there's a quote from an individual named Stanley Thomas, who is the chief of Saikus. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly, but it's a First Nations community in British Columbia. Um, And he says that Data, to me, we've had it all our lives, but it isn't always written down. Our data is here in our own way. It's in our heads. And although Indigenous wisdom is, you know, a valid form of data, it's often overlooked, undervalued, and even blatantly ignored. And so I think this this quote from uh, Stanley Thomas is, is super powerful. And so the author of this book, Robin Wall Kimmermer, who's a mother, scientist, decorated professor, and enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, offers really unique insight and perspective into the intersections of Indigenous wisdom, scientific knowledge, and the teaching of plants. Not only is she the author of Braiding Sweetgrass, but her first book, Gathering Moss, A Natural and Cultural History of Mosses, was awarded the John Burroughs Medal for Outstanding Nature Writing, and her other work has appeared in numerous publications and scientific journals. Now that we have a bit of introduction under our belt, I am super excited to have this discussion today because, first of all, the book is phenomenal. But second of all, many of you may not know this, but in addition to her work with DFN, Simran has also recently started a regenerative farm called Athiana Acres in Vancouver, British Columbia. And she and her team grow a bunch of vegetables, fruits, herbs, and flowers. And she is just killing it as a young female entrepreneur. So I think she's going to have some really interesting perspectives on this book. Um, And Simran, I'm I'm curious, what were your just overall thoughts of the book? 
Well, thanks for that little intro, Allie. But yeah, I'm super excited about this book and to chat about it today because, as you said, it's so unique from other books that we've talked about here at TFN. I actually heard about this and got my hands on this book through my interest and background in land and food systems. But then shortly after that, someone recommended it to me in the technology space as well. And so I truly think that this is a book for any and everyone, regardless of interest or background, because we all have a connection to the land, although many of us have become disconnected through the way we live our lives. But this book really brings to life how deep the connection is between people and land or how it should be. And I think it's just fascinating how Robin discusses kind of the dichotomy between the scientific approach to botany that she was taught through her academics versus the Indigenous knowledge that her ancestors taught her growing up. So there's definitely some sadness in realizing this dichotomy, and it makes you wonder what the world would look like had we cherished and embraced Indigenous knowledge rather than it being virtually eradicated. I definitely feel that sense of sadness as well, but I mean, you can't help but be grateful that there are people like Robin, you know, sharing these stories and that this book has become so popular. Totally agree. And yeah, I guess overall thoughts on the book, nothing but good things to say. And it's just so beautifully written. Um, I think the images of nature that Robin is able to paint in our mind as we're reading are just so unique and special from any other book. And thinking about that more, I diving deeper into it, I think one of the reasons that she's able to create these pictures in our minds is because of the type of languages that she uses. And it was early on in the book in one of the first few chapters that she has a detailed discussion around language and how the English language differs so much from the language of her ancestors. Um, and so to explain that a bit more, she talks about how English is a nouns-based language or culture and European language have often divided the world into masculine and feminine, but in her traditional language, which is Potuami, um, the world is divided into living and non-living, into animate and inanimate, which is unique from any other language, but this is how it often is in Indigenous languages. And so you can really feel that in the way that she writes about the book, because what they define as animate objects are so different from what me and you have grown up thinking about what animate is. Um, in these Indigenous languages, animate objects include rocks and mountains and fire and places, whereas that's just not the way that I had ever looked at the world before. So I think that's what makes the book so special. And the, an example of this that I remember from the book is that in English, we describe a bay as a noun. So a bay being a body of water. But Robin talks about how in Patuami, it's to be a bay. And so bay is a verb. And that was just really eye-opening to me and so unique. And she talks about how in English language, bay is treated as a noun, as if it's something that's dead. But in Potuami, they recognize it as being something that's very much animate. And it's something that moves and can be a bay or it can be a stream or it can be an ocean. And so that was just something that really stood out. Those differences between Indigenous language and the language that we grew up speaking definitely stood out to me as well. And like even beyond the animate versus inanimate, it goes even deeper than that. Like there's every word seems to be so carefully chosen, or at least she brought up a few examples of that. One that 
is coming to my mind right now that stuck with me is the word for land. They the, the word means that which has been given to us. That's how they define land, that which has been given to us. But in English, we speak of the land as a natural resource. And so that discrepancy is just so blatant to me. And I, I can't help but wonder like in what ways that influences our lives and the decisions that we make. Exactly. Yeah. It seems like language is really the foundation and feeds into how these indigenous communities view the world, how they treat the world. And it seems to be the reason why they have such a deep sense of gratitude rooted in their culture. There was one paragraph that I think I just have to read for everyone because it was so beautiful. And I think it sums up this conversation around language so nicely. So I'll read this direct excerpt from the book, which says, the animacy of the world is something we already know, but the language of animacy teeters on extinction, not just for native peoples, but for everyone. Our toddlers speak of plants and animals as if they were people, extending to them self and intention and compassion until we teach them not to. We quickly retrain them and make them forget. When we tell them that the tree is not a who, but an it, we make that maple an object. We put a barrier between us absolving ourselves of moral responsibility and opening the door to exploitation. Saying it makes the living land into natural resources. If a maple is an it, we can take up the chainsaw. If a maple is a her, we think about it twice. Wow. That passage is just so powerful. And it makes me wonder if the language we use has led not only to us feeling that sense of disconnect and that like lack of gratitude for the natural world, but also as data scientists and, and researchers feeling disconnected from the communities that we're collecting data on and like just that feeling of, of disconnect in, in general. Now, this is a bit of like a half-baked thought right now, but bear with me because there's an example in the book that beautifully illustrates what, what I'm trying to say. Um, in one chapter, Robin writes about estuaries, which are partially enclosed bodies of water where fresh water from rivers and streams mixes with salt water from the ocean. These estuaries are like super important for salmon because salmon are born in fresh water and they serve as a sort of nursery for salmon where they can adjust to the salt water before entering the ocean. And so when settlers came to North America from Europe, they brought with them a bunch of livestock and they obviously needed pastures for this livestock. And so some of these wetlands were converted to pastures by building these dikes to keep the water out. And unsurprisingly, they had really negative effects on the salmon population. But fortunately, in recent years, some of these pastures have been restored to estuaries and scientists, of course, are diligently collecting data points on how this restoration is affecting the salmon population. And now what was so moving about this part of the book is Robin describes many of these scientists who are doing this work and collecting these data points as heart-driven scientists whose notebooks are love letters to salmon. And now not only is this just like a beautiful sentence, but what she's trying to say is like the majority of ecologists are drawn to the field not because of their love for data or their, their love for numbers but because of their love for the species and the specimen that they're studying and i guess the reason that this stood out to me is 
I don't know, this idea of heart-driven science and a relationship of awe and respect between like the scientist and the research subject is like in my experience not not really the norm. And even even for data professionals and researchers who are really passionate about their jobs, like myself included, it's really easy to forget that there are people behind those numbers. Like I'm a data scientist, I'm super passionate about what I do, but at the end of the day, I'm not like in the wetlands with these species that I'm studying, fully immersed in the reality of the data I'm analyzing. I'm at my desk looking at a screen and so no wonder there's like that disconnect, right? For sure, yeah. I think that point that you brought up about heart-driven science is just so beautiful. And when those connections can be made and when those scientists have the ability and the opportunity to be working with what they love, I think you can definitely feel that in their work. But you're right that not all of us have that option. Some of us are just sitting in front of a desk um, and we don't have that connection with the land or what we're doing. So is there anything that you can think of of how we can bridge that disconnect? I mean, it's not an easy, it's not an easy solution. I think we can learn a lot from this book about how to bridge this disconnect, not only when it comes to science and data, but in all aspects of life. Um, like you said, like recognizing that a, that a piece of paper came from a tree, not to say you shouldn't use the piece of paper, but keeping these connections in mind and practicing gratitude, you know, helps us to ensure that we only take what we need. We don't get greedy. That's just like a common, a common theme throughout the book and within indigenous culture. But back to the question, like how can we bridge this disconnect in the world of data? At the end of the day, I think what's most important is just keeping, keep reminding ourselves that from an analysis standpoint, like there are living, breathing people, animals behind these numbers and then from a product development side, the technology you're creating is going to have an impact on people and on society. So just making sure not to lose that human aspect. And I'm even catching myself now. I, I keep saying human people, human aspect, but I guess how this impacts the world beyond your product or, or beyond your analysis is, is how we can try to, to bridge that disconnect. Mm -hmm. I think that's interesting how you brought up the language thing again, because we've been so trained to just talk about humans and Robin brings that up in the book as well, how we are such like a human centric society when really the entire world and specifically in her perspective, the land is such an important part of our world. And it's really something that we've lost touch of. Exactly. And so you're talking about data and the disconnect between our work there and it reminded me of another point in the book um, where in the data pipeline one of the first part of a data project that we always undertake is kind of defining the question what is our question what makes a good data question and in the first few chapters of the book there was a time that Robin's talking about her interview trying to get into botany school and the interviewer asks her why she wants to be in the program? What is it about studying botany that interests her? What does she want to do? And Robin describes in beautiful language what she's passionate about and why she's interested in botany, speaking about her ancestors and how she grew up with this relationship with the land. 
and she poses a question and her question that she wants to answer in her studies is why are goldenrods and asters so beautiful and so goldenrods and asters i didn't know at the time but learned after are flowers so if you google goldenrods and asters you'll see they're the beautiful yellow and purple flowers and so her question was why are they so beautiful and why do they grow together um, because you'll often see them grown side by side and the interviewer looks at her and tells her that that's not a scientific question that's not what botany is and if she's looking to answer that that she should go to art school not a scientific program and so this just reminded me of kind of the way that we shape data questions and how in our minds and how we've been taught for so long is that they need to be very scientific it's not about beauty or art it's about numbers and data only comes in the form of numbers and um, this just reminded me kind of of that principle that data is much more than that and we need to take into account kind of the emotion and the expression involved in data and that questions can go beyond what we initially think of. Totally. This this book has really reminded me that data is not just numbers and statistics, like really anything can be data, whether it be stories or words or or whatever um it definitely reminded me of that plus I, I love how you're saying like robin described so beautifully i feel like that's just the default i know you emphasized this at the beginning but i cannot emphasize enough how beautifully written this book is she's she's an incredible writer totally and there is another point um there's a quote in the book where she is talking about restoring the pond at her home but Regardless of that, the quote says, you wouldn't try to restore a forest without knowing the kind of trees that you are working with. And that kind of reminded me of the concept of knowing what context you are working in, even in a data project and knowing um, what you're working with and the components of the community that you're working with. In her case, she was talking about algae and trees in the pond. Um, but it reminded me of the importance of understanding context and how there's so many examples of various data projects and initiatives that are undertaken, even with good intentions, but fail to understand the communities that they're serving and kind of just layer on this level of data and technology and solutions that they think will um, solve a problem. And so it actually reminded me of a conversation that I had with Tara Cookson, um, who is a professor and author, and she led a project recently called Cosas de Mujeres, which is a WhatsApp-based platform supporting um, women facing gender-based violence um, in South America. And I won't go into too much detail about that project, would highly recommend checking out our previous podcast where we do an interview with her. Um, but that was an example of a project that had a very deep connection with the community that they were serving. Totally. Like those community members need to be involved in the data design from step one to step Z. I mean, yeah, well, as you were speaking about this, I was thinking about Tara's project in particular, and she did such a beautiful, um, a beautiful job of this and really avoided some, I mean, if she hadn't done that, there could have been some really negative consequences of that project just because it is so, so sensitive and she's dealing with such vulnerable communities. So yeah, I agree. She did a really good job with that. There were actually multiple chapters and passages throughout the book that illustrated how we continue to undervalue this, you know, experiential ways of knowing and how we continue to 
um, kind of cast aside this context that is is so important. And one section of the book that was particularly impactful for me in this regard was this chapter where Robin went out harvesting sweetgrass with a couple of different elders within the community. And one thing that I loved learning about while reading this book, I just have to say, it, ca it came up multiple times, um, is there's this like rule within Indigenous communities that whenever you harvest a natural resource, whether it be sweetgrass or salmon or what have you, you never take more than half. Um, and so this kind of goes like hand in hand with don't take more than uh, what you need, you know, leave some for others, but also extending beyond humans, trying to get away from just that human language, allowing the environment to prosper and ensure that these resources thrive for generations to come. Simran, is this what was called the honorable harvest? Yes. Yeah. I remember there's a passage where there's a chapter where she speaks about these things kind of sporadically, and then she ties it together with the principle of the honorable harvest. And there's an excerpt with the guidelines of that and what you're talking about are components of it. Okay. Okay. So like never taking more than half. Mm -hmm. Okay. Gotcha. So anyway, Robin went out to harvest sweetgrass with a couple different people who had different methods of harvesting the sweetgrass and who were both convinced that their method was the right way to do it in terms of enabling that honorable harvest and enabling, enabling the remaining sweetgrass that was not harvested to thrive. So the first method was cutting the sweetgrass just at the base, leaving the roots intact. And the second method was just yanking the whole thing, roots and all from the ground. And so Robin was for curious to know like which method was actually more effective in preserving the surrounding environment. And one of her, I believe it was a PhD candidate, um, wanted to study this for her thesis. So Robin and her student, I, I can't remember her name right now, but it's in the book. They pitched the idea to, it was some sort of board who had to approve the research project. And they basically said like, this is pointless. We already know that harvesting regularly um, will lead to a decrease of, of that species in the area. But somehow Robin and the PhD student managed to convince the board to let them take on the project. And what happened is it turns out that harvesting actually promoted growth. And it kind of led to this idea that, or I guess reinforced the idea that Indigenous communities have been telling us all along that if you use a plant respectfully, it will stay with us and flourish. And so back to like the methods, method one or method two, it actually turned out it didn't matter whether you use the first method of cutting the plant at the base or yanking the whole thing out. But what mattered is that you you harvested it all. So they had like three different sections of sweetgrass, I guess. They had one where they used method one, a, a second where they used method two, and then they, they had a third control group where there wasn't any harvesting done at all. And this third control group actually was the worst of all three. It did the worst in terms of the population thriving. And the reason this was so impactful for me is I feel like what, what we know as fact is just constantly evolving. Like this board said, we already know if you, you know, that this, this is pointless. We already know like harvesting regularly will cause the population to decrease but that's not the case and although these indigenous communities knew that and they have this knowledge that is passed down from generation to generation 
that experiential way of knowing was undervalued and they needed to prove it with data. And actually the part about what you said that I found so interesting was even the experiment itself, knowing that harvesting the sweet grass did result in greater yields than the control group of not harvesting. And it just reminded me of another topic that's brought up throughout the book is the reciprocal relationship that we can have with nature if we choose to. And so Robin describes this and how it's amazing to me that if we work respectfully with the land, that the land will thrive more than if we didn't. So there is this relationship for people and land to be so intertwined. And there's another example in the book that she talks about. It's a chapter called The Three Sisters. And again, just the way the language that is used, they treat what we would think are nouns as animate objects. And so the three sisters are actually vegetables. So the three sisters are corn, beans, and squash. And so this chapter is talking about the reciprocal relationship that they can have with each other if they're planted side by side. And so to describe it a bit more, because I think it, it needs some description for it to make sense. But um, Robin talks about how if you plant these three crops in the same area, the corn is the first to emerge um, just because of their germination periods. They all have different germination times. And so corn is the first to emerge. And then when it becomes about six inches tall, that's when a bean sprout will begin to emerge. And eventually the vine of the bean sprout gets longer and it wraps itself around the corn because it needs something to wrap itself around. And then weeks later, the squash begins to sprout. And when it pokes up, squash have really big leaves. And so eventually they'll spread out and they'll cover the soil. So they're very low laying plants, whereas the corn and beans are taller. And so the squash spread and cover the soil with their leaves. And so the chapter kind of talks about these three plants as being sisters and how they each serve a purpose for each other. And so the corn allows the bean to thrive and grow up along it and makes light available to the bean. Otherwise, the bean would have nothing to climb. Um, and so that's the purpose that those two serve. And then the squash keeps out the weeds um, and protects the soil because of the leaves of the squash. And so it's just so interesting that these plants can work together so wonderfully when given the opportunity to. Oh, and then the other point was the beans. Um, this is really cool. So beans are in the legume family and things within the legume family have the ability to fix nitrogen. So nitrogen is one of the essential elements that's needed in soil. And when soil is deficient in nitrogen, you can plant things like beans and they have the ability to fix nitrogen and make it available to plants because sometimes it exists, but it's not in an available form to plants. And so beans have this ability to fix nitrogen. And so she talks about that in this chapter as well. And so it's around the relationship between these three plants. And the nitrogen piece reminded me of on the farm, um, we planted cover crops on the farm, which one of which was clover, which is a legume, and it served the same purpose. Our soil is deficient in nitrogen. And so by planting that, we were able to increase the nitrogen available in the soil. And I actually ripped up one of the cloves to look and you can actually see on the roots of a clove the little nodules that are full of nitrogen so that was just 
really cool. I actually I learned that right before reading this chapter and then I read the chapter. And so that was just a really cool connection to make. And it made got me thinking about what other relationships there are between plants that are like this. And I just, I want to learn more now. I was just going to ask if you were reading the book and you read that part about the nitrogen molecules and if you did, that made you run out and go pick a clove to see if you could see them. But you, you did that. It, it, it would have. I want to go pick some more now to look at them after reading the book. <laughs> I need to come to the farm and see that. Sounds, sounds beautiful. <laughs> it is. And the last piece about agriculture that Robin brings up in the book is kind of the difference between indigenous agriculture practices versus modern agriculture practices. And she mentions that indigenous agriculture, the practice is to modify what plants you plant to suit the land. Whereas in modern agriculture, we have taken the opposite approach and instead we modify the land to suit the plants. And that's what has led to if you look in modern agricultural fields that are tilled and being sprayed with conventional sprays, which would be fertilizers, pesticides, all of those things are used to modify the soil in order to suit the needs of the plant that they're trying to produce. And um, that's actually how our farm was traditionally and for the last few decades has been farmed was through those practices. And so before we started the regenerative process of regenerating the soil, and even still, it's only been about a year and a half and progress is so slow in trying to do that regenerative process. And so it, when you picked up a handful of our soil, it was just devoid of any living thing and really looked like it was soil from the desert, like it was dry. There was absolutely nothing in it. And so I saw firsthand kind of the impact of that modern agriculture and modifying the soil and treating it as a resource. Now, forgive me, I don't know a ton about farming. I know we've talked about your farm a ton, so I should know more about this. But would you say that regenerative farming and like indigenous farming practices, I guess indigenous communities aren't really known for their farming as much, but would you say that there's like a connection between those two or or how how, do, how are they similar in that way? I think there's a connection for sure. And I absolutely did not know nearly enough prior to reading this book and I only want to learn more now about how indigenous agricultural practices formed and what those are but from our knowledge from my knowledge of what we're doing with our farm and regenerative practices they are very much aligned and it's really about not treating land as a resource but treating it as part of the ecosystem and trying to build a biodiverse ecosystem of a multitude of different species working together which seems to be from what Robin describes at the heart of Indigenous practices as well. So I'm sure there's lots more that we can learn, but it seems like at the heart and at the root, they are very similar. And it's really an approach to respecting the land rather than treating it as a resource. It's amazing that you're taking that extra step to go above and beyond and foster that relationship with the land in, in a natural way, um, which is uncommon in today's in today's society. So I really admire and, and respect you and your team at Athena Acres for that. Um, on that note, it seems like this book has like really influenced your way of thinking when it comes to your work on the farm. Are there any learnings or practices that are particularly impactful for you that you plan to incorporate into the farm? Or I guess like at a larger scale that have just 
influenced your life in general that have generally been impactful? Mm -hmm. I feel like there's too many to count, probably, honestly, for anyone listening, you'll read this book, and you'll want to sticky note every page and every sentence as a quote, because there's so many things that are applicable, um, and that you'll want to remember and come back to. Um, but in regards to the farm, going back to the example of corns, beans and squash, I think I want to plant those side by side now. And I want to learn about more relationships like those and experiment on the farm, because I think that's just so beautiful what plants are able to do when given the right conditions. Um, and so I'm really interested in learning about more relationships like that. And in terms of the farm business itself, I'm more um, on the side of the business side of it um, and less so involved in the farm actively in, out in the soil. Um, I do, I spend some time out there, but this book has just made me want to spend a lot more time out there and get even more deeply involved in the land and foster that relationship. So I think it's definitely sparked that interest in me. Um, another point that I remember from the book that Robin brought up was the idea of ceremonies and how in Western culture, we've defined ceremonies to be things that we celebrate for people, like birthdays and graduations and things like that. We celebrate them for ourselves, whereas in Indigenous communities and culture, they had I'm sure they celebrated those as well, but maybe more importantly, and more often, they celebrated things related to the land and the natural world. And I can't think of examples right now off the top of my head, but I just remember that she spoke about that in a chapter and it stuck with me because it made me want to incorporate that into the farm as well, because one of the main things that we want to have on the farm is community events in the years to come and bringing people onto the land. And so I just think that that's something that I can definitely take away and want to think about more is how we can include ceremonies that celebrate the natural world as part of something that the farm does. I have so many more questions about the farm, but I will save that for later at the risk of this turning into a full farm episode. Um, yeah, a lot of what you said resonated with me as well. Like just it makes you reassess every aspect of your life reading this book, like the sustainability aspects. But I think what resonated with me the most, it was what was most impactful for me in this book was how we, how we just feel so disconnected from the natural world. You know, I look at, I'm looking at my Gatorade water bottle sitting on my desk right now. And I'm like, what, what is this even made of? I mean, it's plastic and I know that that comes from oil, but looking around me that's it's just so disconnected like there are very few things made for that i can actually tie back to its origin and to the land which is concerning for life in general <laughs> um but it, it just makes me wonder how things would be different if we hadn't you know forced indigenous people to assimilate all those years ago but rather but rather learned for them from them and I wonder, you know, how that would influence not only my daily life, but my work and, you know, data practices, whether our data practices would be more equitable and, and benefit everyone rather than rather than the privileged few. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the DFN podcast. To stay up to date on our events, be sure to follow us on social or check out our website at www.datafeminismnetwork.org. Tune into next week's episode, where we'll dive into Race After Technology by Ruha Benjamin. You're not going to want to miss it. <laughs>